Well, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through 8, and today is our fifth of seven balance points in life. Today, we speak of godliness, godliness. Well, I'm going to take a step back into my childhood. Some of you like that when I step back into my childhood because you feel young when I step back further than you can remember. Some of you feel the opposite. You say, oh, yes, I remember when uh, my children uh, did that uh, or whatever. But uh, Romper Room, does anybody remember Romper Room? Yeah. Romper Room was a a children's program that ran in just about every major market in the United States. And uh, it broadcast from 1954 until the early 80s. I didn't realize that it went into the 80s. Uh, but evidently it did. It was sold to stations. Um, I saw it, by the way, in the 50s, uh, just FYI. But <clears throat> it was sold in, in, uh, to stations in two ways, a standard syndication, and also it was sold like a franchise with uh, different local hosts in each city. There were 150 <clears throat> of these franchises in all. The series was developed by Bert and Nancy Claster, and they trained many of the local hosts. In Nashville, we learned from Miss Norma. Uh, Miss Norma was our uh, romper room uh, leader. And <clears throat> Miss Norma, at the end of her uh, program, at the end of romper room, she would hold up her magic mirror. I never understood how this worked. But uh, she would hold up her magic mirror, and she would say, Romper, bumper, stomper, boo. Tell me, tell me, tell me, do, magic mirror, tell me today, have all my friends had fun at play? And then, magically, looking through the mirror, she would call names, and she would say, I see that Larry had a good time today, and Donna, you have had a wonderful time with your friends at play. And she would go through and she would call Mark and she would call all of these names and I would sit there and say, call my name. That was the preface to the song, say my name, say my name. I would say, call my name. And she never called Randy that I remember. I guess I just didn't have fun at play. Romper room. One of the big features on romper room was doobie. You remember Doobie? And I'm not talking about Doobie, Doobie, Doo. I'm talking about Doobie. Doobie and Don't Be. By the way, it's an interesting picture to look out here right now. Some of you have these adoring looks on your face like, oh, I remember. And others are saying, has he lost his mind? Doobie. Doobie and Don't Be taught us lessons of life. For instance, concerning sharing toys, Mr. Doobie would say, Doobie, a toy sharer. And Don't Be would say, Don't be toy selfish. As corny as all of that seems now, reality is that this little program reinforced principles of godliness. 
God, who is laughing back there? Who is it? Is it, is it Michelle? I'd scoot away from her if I were you. Oh, you're going to embrace it. Okay. <laughs> I suspect that Michelle lived on the don't be list a good deal. <clears throat> Are you going to be okay? <laughs> they reinforce principles of godliness. Godliness has little reinforcement today outside of the church, the Christian home, the Christian school. You don't find a lot of reinforcement of godliness today. Even so, godliness is one of those seven balance points that gives the believer the power to live for Christ. Let's go review them again. 2 Peter 1 and verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, that was last Sunday, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, that's next Sunday, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Bible reveals a lot of instruction, as you might expect, a lot of instruction on godliness. I'm certain that we could do a whole series just on the word godliness and deal with a lot of things. However, in this fifth balance point of our seven-week series, let's just stay with some simple instructions on godliness And while our text is from 2 Peter, the Apostle Paul also gives us some instruction concerning godliness. And we're going to have a do be, a don't be, and a do be. The first one's a little surprising. Do be proactive. Now, this is interesting. Do be proactive in godliness. What is that talking about? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1, Paul writes... First of all, then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, here's a passage of Scripture that is often read, and rightly so, as instruction about our responsibility to those in authority over us. The result is our ability to live peaceful, quiet lives in dignified godliness. Now, this was written in a time when Paul had experienced house arrest. Paul had been imprisoned, and he had also been imprisoned in Rome. Nevertheless, knowing that the authorities had abused their power over him, he called for intercession. He said there should be intercession. This is a proactive posture in life that believers can take to promote godliness in their lives. A few weeks ago, we had a thin blue line Sunday. There I am with Sheriff Wood That's Ray Wood's brother, if in case anybody wants to know that. Ray Wood's sitting right back there, and he is proud of his brother. 
I don't blame him. <clears throat> that sheriff would. We were honoring uh, the men and women of law enforcement. And this was in response to the poor treatment those in law enforcement receive in our country today. It seems like many of them do. And like the military, law enforcement is a career of honor, and it should be respected and prayed for by those who come under its <clears throat> authority. Now, as hard as it may seem, this kind of prayer is recommended. It's even required if we are to add to our faith godliness. To be godly, there must be some understanding <clears throat> of prayer for those in authority. Even those we don't like, even those we didn't vote for, even those we're trying to get out of office. There is to be a prayer for them. The prayers should be genuine. The prayers should be sincere. It helps us to be proactive regarding godliness, that we pray for those in authority over us. These two verses teach intercession, but clearly they have other implications as well. If you're going to be proactive in godliness and you're going to be proactive in regard to those in authority over you, not only should there be intercession, there should be interaction. I think that's very, very important. Pastors and deacons, those in Christian service, and Christians in general should interact with people in authority. We should have an interaction with them. And you should start with the people that you see every day. I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud, but I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you know, and some of you do, how many of you know who Brian Bishop is? Would you raise your hand? You know who Brian Bishop is. Does anybody know who Brian Bishop is? There's one. Anybody else know? Back there, there's two. Anybody else know who Brian Bishop is? There's one back there. For several years now, there has been a Leon County Sheriff's deputy standing at the front of our property, <clears throat> letting us out at the end of the service. In addition to that, that sheriff's deputy, probably right now, if I were to send somebody out there after him, He's probably in the foyer right now, uh, right out there in that, that center foyer. I think that's uh, where he uh, stations himself during the, uh, uh, the church service. After the church service, he is, uh, he is proactive in, in helping the offering get to the right place and, and with proper security. And then he stands out there and he directs traffic and he lets you out. That sheriff's deputy's name is Brian Bishop. He attended North Florida Christian School. Brian Bishop is someone in authority with whom you have interaction, but you didn't know it. You should try to know <clears throat> Brian Bishop. He waves to a lot of you as you go out. That's Brian Bishop. Get to know <clears throat> the people that you interact with every day. Get to know your city or county commissioners, your state representative, your congressional representative. My son is here today. My son is a lobbyist, and uh, he has another title that's uh, 
sounds a little fancier, but that's what he is. He's a lobbyist. And I would say this, Nathan, that a lot of people do not get to know their representatives, their commissioners, the people that are in authority in their lives until they come to a place of confrontation. Then they get to know them. And oftentimes it's too late to know them then because now you're at a place of of confrontation instead of conversation. You should get to know them ahead of time. Know the judges. Know the leaders in our government. Most of us get to know them, but we wait too late to get to know them. Get to know them conversationally, not confrontationally. Be involved in the civic groups that will allow you to get to know those people in authority over you. I have a lot of folks in this room today who have had the experience of getting to know those in authority. I've, had, I've got people in this room today who have had that authority. And they will tell you that it is far better to get to know someone as a friend or as an acquaintance before they confront you with an issue than it is to wait until they throw an issue uh, you throw an issue at them. Christians can get to know, can can get to know people in authority, and we should. <clears throat> we should have an interaction with them. Now, this is thus saith the Randy. Okay, the prayer, the intercession is thus saith the Lord. This point is thus saith the Randy. But I want to tell you, it fits real good with thus saith the Lord, because we should get to know those in authority over us. In addition to interaction, there should be influence. I want to talk to you about something that will surprise some of you. Did you know that only about 50% of all Christians in America are registered to vote? Only 50%. Now, the way that we would see that is if you represented all of the Christians in America, we would say half of you are registered to vote, the other half are not registered to vote. Even though all of you can be registered to vote and all of you can have influence, by that statistic, half of you are and half of you are not. Now, here's what's interesting still. Of those that are registered to vote, only 50% of them show up and vote. Meaning that 75% of all Christians are not taking advantage of the opportunity to have influence in government that would promote their ability to live in dignified godliness. Now, I can tell you this about all Christians All Christians get aggravated when our freedoms seem to be slipping away. All Christians get upset and they don't understand the nativity scene not being uh, able to be displayed anymore. All Christians get upset about Christmas trees 
for crying out loud, taken down, and, and this, that, and the other. All Christians have a, a, an opinion about this kind of thing as it relates to public life. All Christians get rubbed the wrong way when, when somebody uh, puts on a campaign that says, we need to take out under God in the Pledge of Allegiance or remove in God we trust on our, our uh, currency. All Christians get upset about those kind of things, but interestingly enough, 75 of all Christians place no value on voting. They don't vote. Did you know that if every Christian would register to vote and then do so, did you know that candidates who share their beliefs and values would win the presidency and all other elections in a landslide? Christians have abdicated their responsibility to vote, their privilege to vote. How can believers bemoan the decline of Christian and moral values when in America 75% of them will not even exercise their right to vote? Some of you who are Facebook and Twitter aficionados and you have and, and whatever else is out there, and you have <clears throat> a lot of followers and, and people that you interact with, you, you know what high horse you need to get on? You need to get on the high horse of let's all of us Christians vote. Let's all of us Christians register to vote. And in every election, I'm forever getting political surveys. People will call my house. And I answer some and some I don't. But I'll get a call and they'll say, uh, would you consider yourself a super voter? I think that's the word that they use, a super voter. And they describe what a super voter is. You vote in X percentage of elections. And I said, well, I vote in 100% of all elections. I always vote. They said, then you're a super voter. And I like to think of that in two ways. I like to think that I'm a super voter, and I like to think I'm a super voter. We all ought to be super voters if we're Christians. And I'm not telling you what party to register with. I'm not telling you who to vote for. I'm not telling you any of that. I'm just saying, if you are a believer, you ought to be registered to vote. And if you're registered to vote, you ought to be voting. In 1774, our founding fathers wrote this in the Journal of the Continental Congress. It is an indispensable duty which we owe to God, our country, ourselves, and posterity by lawful ways and means in our power to maintain, defend, and preserve these civil and religious rights and liberties for which many of our fathers fought, bled, and died, and to hand them down entire to future generations." Do you know why future generations are not going, or why generation today does not have some of the freedoms and liberties that were when you were a child or when your parents were children? Because believers stopped voting. Believers abdicated their responsibility. To be godly, we should try and have a godly influence on people in authority and around us every day and those who we see in the news. And, And by the way, 
you would be amazed at the interaction you can have with famous people. I'll put it like that. You'd be surprised at the interaction that you can have with famous people on social media if you are thoughtful and measured in your outreach to people of national reputation. I will spare you personal examples, but I will tell you it's entirely possible to have influence some influence through that medium with people who have a lot more influence than you have every day. Once again, it's important to have a good influence before you try to have a in-your-face influence. So to include the balance point of godliness in our lives, we should be proactive so that our godly influence can abound. Here's the second thing. Don't be worldly. Do be proactive. Don't be worldly. Of course, this is the expectation of what it means to be godly, to avoid worldliness. And that is certainly accurate or at least part of what is to be done. Staying with Paul's writing on the matter, we see three ways to avoid worldliness. First of all, good training There's a lot of time spent on rumors and facts from the book of They Say. Most of us have some level of concern about uh, government intrusion in our lives, Facebook or Twitter uh, misusing our information, or the Google Google car taking pictures of our home and putting it on the Internet. Most of us have some level of concern about that. That being said... There is in the world today whole lifestyles built on impending doom. The fear that <clears throat> of, of Big Brother and always the fear of Big Brother. There, there are people who are known as preppers. And if you're a prepper, that's, that's your business. I'm not criticizing you for being a prepper. I would encourage you to be a voting prepper. I'd encourage you to be a godly prepper. I'd encourage you to be a, uh, an outreach prepper. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, have nothing to do with irrelevant, silly myths, but rather train yourself for godliness. We know that we are to walk by faith and and not by sight. That does not imply irresponsibility, but it does tell us that spending our time on certain scenarios should not be our priority. A lot of people are giving priority to that which shouldn't be priority and failing to give priority to that which should be priority. Good training, godly training is a a priority we should have. Excuse me. Paul told Timothy to train himself to godliness. Here's an interesting thing. That word train in the, uh, the, the Greek, the word train is gymnazo. You know what word we get from gymnazo? Gymnasium. <clears throat> That's exactly right. If you want <clears throat> to work on something, work out on something, you can work out at the gymnasium, but also work out in godliness. Good training is part of what it means to avoid worldliness in our Christian walk. Here's another thing <clears throat> good values. 1 Timothy 6, 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. There's a fixation, or there can be, a fixation on money that's unhealthy to the spiritual life. This in no way implies that believers cannot do well or should not do well, even be wealthy or even be smelly rich. Believers can be. That being said, there's a difference between having it and living for it. Huge difference. I'm going to say something now that's worth writing down. Okay, get ready for this. There are people who do not have it who live for it. And there are those who have it who do not live for it. We think because somebody has it, they live for it. There are a lot of people who have it that don't live for it. We think that because we don't have it, then we don't live for it. There are a lot of people who don't have it who do live for it. The presence or absence of money is not always an indicator of the love of it. I can tell you one thing, though. Loving money, living to be rich, craving for the lifestyles of the rich and famous is a hindrance to godliness. As an anecdote to the love of money, here's what Paul tells Timothy to do, to run from that influence and to embrace righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. In fact, let me just say it this way. If in your life you embrace righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and and gentleness, you can be as rich as you want to be. I had someone email me the other day. Uh, They actually messaged me about somebody in in Christian service that was that was well known and how much money that person made. And and in my belief it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant how much money they make. Because the presence or absence of money doesn't say anything about godliness. It doesn't say anything about the love of money. It doesn't say anything about someone's value system. It's whether or not somebody pursues righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. To avoid worldliness in our lives, it all boils down to making good choices. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the God of our great, uh, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now here's a passage that reinforces something that we've already seen in the seven balance points of the Christian life, self-control. We must have some measure of self-control in order to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
both of which must be removed if we're to live upright and godly lives. Self-control is best achieved when God is in control of our lives. Now, for God to be in control of our lives, there must be a predisposition to His control. God, I'm going to let you control my life. I'm going to give my life over to you. And then there must be a constant monitoring of that commitment and a recommitment of the same. And beyond that, there must be outside help for us to have self-control. Give you an illustration from Benjamin Franklin. I normally put up a picture, but I assume all of you know what Benjamin Franklin looks like. Wasn't very pretty. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin wrote this. Very, very interesting. By the way, Benjamin Franklin was not a believer. Okay? He was not a believer. But I want you to hear what he had to say. I conceived the bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. I wish to live without committing any fault at any time. I would conquer all that either natural inclinations, custom, or company might lead me into. As I knew or thought I knew what was right or wrong, I did not see why I might not always do the one and avoid the other. But I soon found I had undertaken a task of more difficulty than I had imagined. While my care was employed in guarding against one fault, I was often surprised by another. Habit took the advantage of inattention. Inclination was sometimes too strong for reason. I concluded at length that the mere speculative conviction that it was our interest to be completely virtuous was not sufficient to prevent our slipping. You know what he was saying? He was saying this. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do what I, uh, for I uh, do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, what do you know? The Apostle Paul and Benjamin Franklin had the same problem, except for the fact that the Apostle Paul learned how to solve it. He said, it's through the Holy Spirit in my life that I'm able to exercise self-control and I don't have to be as worldly as my flesh wants me to be. If I'd been sitting where you were, I'd have been amen and jumping up on the pew right there at that point. That's the truth. 
That's a big truth. Benjamin Franklin said, I'm so smart, I figured it out, I can do this thing, I can make the right choices. And then he said, wow, was I ever wrong. And the Apostle Paul said, I'm so spiritual and close to God that I know that I can do the right thing, and I'm going to set out to do the right thing. And oh my goodness, every time I try to do the right thing, I do the wrong thing. When I say I don't want to do the wrong thing, I end up doing the thing that I hate so much. What is wrong with me? I know what's wrong with me. I am a sinful man. Thanks be to God who gives me the victory. If you want to live in godliness, you must trust God who gives the victory. Well, we've looked at some doobies and don't bees. Let's end with a doobie, and that is do be holy. Now we return to the writings of Simon Peter. In 1 Peter 1.13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Well, in our text Simon Peter gives seven balance points to the Christian life. And in this passage, he gives seven keys to godliness. I'm going to end by giving you these seven keys. First is preparation. Nobody trips and falls into godliness. Wow. Man, I went to bed a stinker and woke up godly. That doesn't happen like that. There's got to be some preparation. There must be a preparation of our mind. Paul told the Romans that the way to avoid conforming to the world is by transforming their mind, Romans 12, 2. Preparation and then action. Peter goes on to say that our minds prepare us for action. Godliness is not passive, it's active. We, we, we have life and we have it more abundantly, so we should live our Christianity Some people have Christ and others live Christ. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. Never substitute knowing what's right for doing what's right. There must be preparation, but then put action to the preparation. Well, I knew I shouldn't do it. Well, then don't do it. Well, I knew that I ought to. Well, then do it. Preparation and action, sincerity. We're going to talk more about sincerity in, in our Wednesday night Bible study. The words used in is sober-minded, which means sincere. It does not mean that we're always solemn, but we're believers who live godly lives and we're sincere about it. We're not insincere about it. Some people think that to be sober-minded means to be long-faced all the time. That's not true. I saw something yesterday that comforted my soul. This was not scripture, but I'm going to live it because I think it's really, really good. Somebody had posted on Facebook, if you haven't grown up by age 60, you don't have to. I like it. That's my mantra mantra from now on, Joe. I just don't have to. I don't have to grow up. Here's the third, fourth thing, hopeful. We are to 
have preparation and action and sincerity and be hopeful. Our hope is set fully on grace. There is no other reason to hope. We cannot hope in our self-righteousness. We cannot hope in our good works. We cannot hope in our right to salvation. Our hope is in the grace of God. And then obedient. We are obedient children of God and resistant to the passions of our former ignorance. Some of you in this room were once drug users, addicted to alcohol, living lives of of immorality and, and shame. And now God has got a hold of your life. You've been born again and you're living for the Lord. Here's, here's what Peter says. Resist the pull of your flesh back to that former life and above all. By, by the way, let me just stop right there and say something. I've been, y'all know I watch these weird television programs. I've been watching this new television program uh, called Night Watch. It's, it's the EMTs and the fire pe- people and the SWAT team and all that in New Orleans. And it's just footage of what they do. The other night I, I was watching, and they picked up a guy that, that had been on heroin. And he had lived on heroin. And he was just, I mean, he was just trembling. And he wanted to get off heroin, Steve. And they asked him. They, they, they took him. They thought he had overdosed. That's, that was the call, but it was just the opposite. He had been off of heroin for two days, and he wanted to stay off of heroin. And so he came and he sat down, or they, they put him in the, the, the bus, the EM, EMS bus, and they, they put him in the bus, and, and he was there, and he said, uh, and, and, they, and, and he was trembling. He was really a pitiful case, and he said, I, I've got to stop this. He said, I watched my brother do this, and I've got to stop this. And, and they said, and, and the one uh, EMT said, look, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a, 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 an injection right now to, to calm you down. And he said, please don't do that. He said, don't stick a needle in me. And the, the other EMT said, uh, he, he's a really kind of a cool guy. He said, I, I understand you, brother. I know what it is, brother. I know what's... He said, I'm telling you, you can put ice water in my veins right now, and I'll be just as high as if you put heroin. He said, I don't need the needle. I can't stand the needle. You know what he was saying? He wanted to resist the pull back to the heroin. We have to know that. We have to know what pulls us back. We have to resist it. And finally, we just must be holy. We can live holy, not because of our ability, but because of His holiness. You shall be holy, for I am holy, God's Word says. Let me just close with this. Here's what Jonathan Edwards said, a very simple, brief statement. Resolved that all men shall live for the glory of God. Resolved, second, that whether others do or not, I will. And therein lies our resolve. If we can achieve the balance point of godliness, we can achieve those other balance points too. I pray that we will strive to live God's holiness in our lives.